0: We're continuing our series entitled Biblical Church Discipline. Our subtitle is the confessional authority of the Reformed and Presbyterian Church Discipline in its manifestation from the Holy Scripture as maintained in the covenant of church practice and the history of the church Of Jesus Christ. This is sermon number three, and we're dealing with this topic of the biblical authority for church discipline. Now, that's very important for us because we need to understand exactly why church discipline is important. Let's look to the Lord our God in prayer. Our Holy Father, we thank you for the privilege to once again come to examine your word, to examine the doctrine that has been handed not only down from the early church, but as the church went astray in the Reformation, we did bring the ship back to its rightful place a rightful understanding of what the Word of God teaches concerning our redemption. And we pray, O God, you will bless us, strengthen us in this truth. We thank you and we praise you for the work that you have done in us by the power of thy Holy Spirit. And we ask, O God, that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive that which your Word and Spirit would teach us, In this hour, in Christ's name, amen. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith makes a very clear understanding of what the nature of true biblical faith is. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because last week I made reference to us not giving lip service to Christ. But I think you need to understand certain aspects of this before we go on in looking at the church being founded by Christ. It is the appointed form of government he has given to us with all authority and power. Power as he commands The word of God has the highest authority in the church. Christ the head gives to us the word which governs how we govern the church. But what's important is to understand why do we get into these kind of things like church discipline? Well, this lip service to Christ, what I was talking about, I'd like to simply give a little bit of preface before we move on in looking at the scripture that supports this doctrine because I think we often don't understand exactly what it is that we're saying. The, the Westminster Confession says that the Bible teaches this, that the principal acts of saving faith are receiving accepting, excuse me, and receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Well, what exactly did the Westminster Divines mean by that phrase? Very important. Because it's a response to the Roman Catholic Church, in particular. There are, and it's very important to understand, two aspects to faith. The first one we call assent. That is accepting and receiving. It is an acknowledgement in our understanding. A, we understand what is being said and we receive it as being the truth of God. That is one aspect of what faith itself is. However, the second part is so important. We call it the fiducia, meaning the trust, the living out of, of that faith, acting upon what the Spirit of God has done in us in regeneration. Now I said, this is a response to an accusation that Rome is going to give. Because we are not arguing that faith isn't alive, that it doesn't have fruits or good works to it, not at all. In responding to Rome, remember what Rome taught Rome completely goes off the rails in their theology. And they say, through intellectual sin, we are saved, and we maintain that through human meritorious effort. We maintain our faith. If we don't maintenance our faith, we can lose it. Because they are semi-Pelagian in their teaching. And so the divines in responding to the allegations that would be there and also to dealing with this within the church is saying true faith has two major components, the assenting, and the receiving. And both of them are the assent. They are an acknowledgement. Now, what makes the difference here? Again, let me use an old illustration I've used before. The difference between a student and a disciple. Because I read, let's say, Karl Marx, who is very repulsive, to any Christian. Because if I'm a philosophy student, major, which I was, and if I said, well, I understand what Marx is saying, and I accept there are certain problems in life. You know, you can't treat people bad. You can't violate the Ten Commandments because you own a business. You must treat them properly When we talk about that in the fifth commandment and the duty of those who are in higher authority, how they need to respond to those who are lesser and under their authority. As those under them have duties, so do them over. So we can understand a little bit of perhaps what he was saying. But that doesn't make me a Marxist. But if I said, you know what, not only do I understand and accept what he has said as being correct, but I'm going to put those principles to work in my life. Now I'm a student of Karl Marx that has become a disciple as well. And so I'm no longer just one studying Marxism and philosophy, I've become a practicing Marxist. Now the divines are making this important point. It is one thing to give assent to the truth of God. When we say that we give lip service, we're not saying it's just made up. We're saying that these people are saying the right thing. Uh, Maybe they need to be rehearsed a little bit. But what are we saying? Look, it's the old Romans Road mentality, the Galilean Alley, as I like to call it. You need to be saved. Just say Jesus Christ is necessary to save me. They're not sure why. They know it has to do with sin, but they still don't know what sin is per se because most of them don't believe in the law of God. And if there's no law, there can't be any sin. But we'll get to that in a minute. Now the Roman Catholic Church understood The basic principle of this, you got to have assent, intellectual assent, but you also have to maintenance. You have to live out that faith, and how do you do that? They argued, it is a work of your will to continue to live out that faith. And if you cease from doing it, then you've got a real problem because it takes both grace and human meritorious effort to make the final cut, as it were, the final justification that's spoken of at the end of time. And so it is, the divine said, No, 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 that's you, you don't have it right. Well, <clears throat> The reality is, not only do we say that Rome is wrong, it's not just an intellectual assent, and then you maintenance what you said you kind of understand and believe, but along comes those other semi-Pelagians, which are kind of a step up from semi-Pelagianism. We call them those who practice the doctrine of what? Free will thinking. I knew them as the neo-fundamentalists. There were real fundamentalists who held to basic fundamentals of the faith. But many of them in their soteriology, in their doctrine of salvation, did not hold to the teaching that came out of the Reformation and the Puritan practices that flooded our country early on. We would know it today as easy believism. Well, it's just so easy. I mean, uh, their concept of a childlike faith doesn't mean the implicit trust that a child has to its mother and father, but to them it's a childish faith, something totally different. And while they say you must assent, they separate the concept of lordship from the assent. In other words, you don't have to rest or trust or act upon that which you say you believe. And so you'll hear them say in these neo-fundamentalistic churches. A lot of them were Baptists. Some of them were called Bible churches. We have free will Baptists. I'll talk about them in a minute. They would say, you just have to say these things. Here's a little prayer. Do you believe you need to be saved? Yes. All right, you're saved. Slap on the back. Got to get you baptized. Baptized. But later, you need to think about making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, which, in essence, is saying to them: Now look, now that you believed, we got a really good thing to tell you. Once you believed, once you're saved, you're always saved. God live like hell. Doesn't matter. You got fire insurance. That's the important thing. You don't have to live like a Christian. You just got to say the right words. See, that's the lip service. I'm assenting, but I'm not having to live it out. I've seen that in the churches, and I've told you that, that I grew up in. I've seen it all around. I've seen it when I went off to college. The Baptists were notorious for this, those of the neo-fundamentalistic thinking. Now, early fundamentalists, many of them taught a really good definition of faith, but that all began to change. When the rebellion came against seminaries and universities, because you know what, this is where liberalism came from. And so we're against the idea of studying the Word of God. They created Bible colleges, glorified Sunday schools. Guy says he's called to preach, you get him in. They were teaching things like, do you know what the 66 books of the Bible are? And Bible college. You would expect they should have known that from the church they attended. But there is this mentality that we do want to be intellectual here but yet that's all they're basically saying that they need for salvation is an intellectual sin later down the road you might become a better Christian if you give your life to the Lord till then you can live like how you can serve Satan but you said the magic words and we reject that you know that doesn't differ from the Roman Catholics much. Because the Roman Catholics said if you said the magic words, and if you'll just maintenance your faith, you do that work eventually. And if you don't, you just go into a priest and ask him to pardon your sins, and they'll be pardoned. And so it's all screwed up in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not redemption through Christ alone. Nonetheless, once saved, always saved. This is grace, and it includes what? Human free will. God can't give me the grace till I'm willing to receive it. So a part of my work and effort must be the willingness to receive the grace of God. No wonder why, being that screwed up, they don't think it's important to have this fiducia issue. Trust, living, acting out the faith that you're supposed to live. A transformation that comes. When we talk about sanctification, both in its negative and positive understanding, the mortifying, killing of sin in your life, the putting on of Christ in your life, his righteousness that's been given to you. What we're saying is those who come to Christ who are really regenerated by the word of God through the power of the spirit of God who comes and redeems you and renews you and brings you out of your bondage to sin, which is something you produce in the works you do every day, to a new life which now wants to put on the righteousness of the good works which were ordained for us, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. That's the Christian, that's the real faith. You see, that's the problem. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to any of these churches, but when I grew up, it was a regular thing for people to walk down the aisle and say, I need to get saved again. It didn't work. Well, of course it didn't work. You live like a sinner and try to proclaim Christ, and you're wondering why it's a problem in your life why is there so much sin? Why is there so many problems that you're not dealing with? But brethren, we're talking about one of the major doctrines of the Reformed faith. The concept of what? Perseverance of the saints. Real saints persevere in their faith. Some refer to it in the Puritan structure of things as Puritan experientialism. They're not talking about being an empiricist. They're saying, you know what, if you really have the faith, there is a real acting out of that faith. It's a living faith. It demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit of God having renewed you and you Persevere in that through God's grace that he has also given you. The whole thing is the work of God's grace through Christ by the power of the Spirit that indwells you. That you not only receive faith for justification, but along with it comes all the other saving graces necessary to live out your Christian life. And so when I say, you give lip service, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, you said the right thing, but the problem is, you're not living it. Why should I believe what you said is real? Now, <clears throat> the most notable church, especially among Baptists in particular are the free will Baptists. And they say, well, the free will has got to be what gets you into heaven because God's grace can't be effectual till you exercise it. I mean, they're emphatic about it. And they warn you, if you will yourself out of God's grace, you'll die and go to hell. You will yourself in, and you can will yourself out. All of a sudden, you can say, I'm going to do this. Well, what do they say? You can lose your salvation. That's what they're talking about. But that's not really what they mean. Now, for you and I, they would say, oh, it's true. But for them, they don't say that. If you have a loved one who has made a profession of faith in one of their churches, and he maybe destroys his marriage, runs off with another woman, dies in his sin, or he drinks himself to death, or he does drugs and dies from it, or he murders people, they don't say, well, you see, he lost his salvation because they got a little clause in this. Really tricky. They'll say, well, he's got to shipwreck his faith. You've never been to a person who was a member of a free will Baptist church where the pastor stood up, said, he drank himself to death and he's in hell today. No, brother so-and-so, he believed, he just got astray. And, but he didn't shepherd he still said he believed these things. Yeah, but he lived like hell. He lived in sin. And you said, if you're not careful, you'll lose your salvation by an act of your will not to continue in the saving grace of God. But what they're saying is, well, it's only if your will continues to say, yeah, I know it's the truth, but I just don't do it. You see, the ascent part is there, but I'm not living it. But I haven't shipwrecked it, yeah, I've, I've gone off into sin. But they'll have a funeral service and they'll say, hey, guess what? He's in heaven. I've never been to a service or heard of a service where well, they don't do that. But they'll argue over this doctrine of losing your salvation. You know why? They don't have a perseverance of the faith. There's no fiducia, there's no trust, there's no resting. The word resting there means that you are living out. You're at rest in that, you're trusting and experiencing the work of the Spirit to do the right thing. You're satisfied. This is what I've been called to in Christ, And so I wanted to explain to you, because this is what the Westminster Divines were arguing. No. No. There must be assent, of course. But there has to be the trust, the living out of the faith, persevering in the truth. And that is still a part of the work of God through the power of the Spirit in the anointing of the blood of Christ that was shed That you profess for your life. And if you're really a sanctified saint. If you're going to be a Christian. And you can't separate that. He who is justified must be sanctified. He who says he's sanctified must be justified. You don't blend them. But the two go hand in hand. That's what the divines were arguing. It is all the grace of God. All of it but just assenting it means nothing. you know why the Bible says the devils believe and tremble but they're not saved. How is it they believe? Are they going do they know enough to know that this is the truth of God? But it's not your will to ascending to the truth. It is the work of the Spirit who transforms your will to the truth. You are are taken out of the kingdom of darkness, placed in the kingdom of light. And that's through the transformation of your Spirit, which is at heart a change of will in the life that you live. It's not enough to say, "Yeah, yeah, I believe," you know, that Jesus lives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you're sharing that while you're passing around some kind of opiate drug or something-induced situation, and you're talking about being spiritual. Most of those people talk about I'm spiritual. I'm just not really into organized religion which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, you're spiritual. I agree with that. And you'll be spiritual straight into hell. That's what the reformers were saying. No, Rome is wrong. No, anybody who believes that we are not measured up against that moral law of God as a standard for our righteousness that we do based on the power of the Spirit that has renewed us, that continues to drive us to that belief and faith, is not in Christ. Which is why, Peter says, make your calling and election sure daily in your life. Examine yourself. Ask God, help me as I struggle in this life and this journey you've called me to to demonstrate the work of the fruit of the spirit of my life which shows up by me performing the good works that are set forth in the keeping of the moral law of God. And so it is, That's what I mean by do not give lip service. Lip service, easy believism, simply saying, yeah, I believe this. Nothing changes in your life. You know, when we take a new member in, one of the things that we try to ask them is, and usually if they're not coming from a Reformed church, when you say, Well, how did God change you when you got saved? Most of them have the slightest idea. I had one preacher's wife in our denomination who had come and joined the church. She said, Well, I married one of your preachers. Great answer for the humanist, not so good for the Christian, especially a Reformed Christian. I've heard people say, Of course I'm a Christian. I shook the pastor's hand. I've heard that. Yeah, I know I don't live the way I ought to be living, but you know what? I still believe. No, you don't. That's not real belief. That's not the faith of Scripture. That's not what the Bible calls true faith. A living faith. One that is of grace. And the grace of God literally encourages and moves you to persevere in the faith that you've been called by the power of the Spirit in Christ. Living that faith. Well, I just wanted to make sure you're clear on this. You know, the first problem can be problematic. I mean, if you say, well, you know, I really don't believe anymore, we're going to say, well, you know, you're not a Christian. That's pretty easy to get along with. You know where the real problems in church discipline come? The fiducia, the trusting, the resting, the acting, the life that is to be lived. That's where much of the problem lies. And the purpose is what? To get you to wake up to see, hey, there's something wrong here. You say you want eternal life? I got news for you. God isn't offering you fire insurance. It is a way of life that you've been called to live daily. It's a struggle. You're not going to be perfect. There's no promise of perfection. But it doesn't stop you from trying to do what is right and persevere and look to God in the power of his spirit to move you along in your journey of salvation. It's all of grace. All of grace. If you don't have the grace of God and you have only an intellectual sense that really does not embrace the Vidukya. Even if you try to war against sin, you're not going to win. You're going to lose. It takes the grace of God to be victorious in our Christian walk. That is what is so important in our faith. Well, coming back to where we were the last Lord's Day, Section 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30, dealing with church censure, says this. The Lord Jesus Christ, as king and head of his church, what is he? He's the king, all authority, and he's the head. He's the one that is going to tell you exactly what is expected of you. What is the church? What is its authority? Where that authority extends to and how the church is to operate. For the purpose of what? Perfecting the saint. Not make them perfect, but for perfecting them, teaching them to live sanctified lives in their profession. Thus he appointed a government. He's appointed a form of government that will perform these things. And he's given it where? Into the hand of of the officers that he has appointed to the church. It belongs to the whole church because the whole church ought to be saying what? Yes. Let not sin be named among us when there is sin an open sin. We need to deal with it. Privately, corporately, it has to be dealt with. It will spread like a cancer. Through the body of Christ. No man, the Bible says, lives to himself. He's not an island. He does not live to himself. He does not die to himself. He affects everything around him. Thus, he says, distinct from the civil magistrate, the Westminster divines are saying it's not the Erastian form of church government in England. It's not a church and the head being the king. There's only one king to the church, Jesus Christ. He has all the authority. He is the head of that church. And he has told us how that church is to operate. And it doesn't look anything like Rome, period. Well, let me go on to where we were last Lord's Day. I think it's very important. I want to pick up. I don't want to be here forever. Got to get out of this at some point in time. But I want you to just understand the importance of this. We've talked to ourselves about the very nature of God appointing these officers. And so it is we left off. If you remember, one of the things that Paul says is take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, talking to the officers of the church, the pastors, the elders and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. you got a job. you got to keep yourself in check. And you got to keep those who are in the body of Christ in check. If one goes astray, you've got to go out and you've got to bring that sheep back to the fold. And sometimes we have to exercise discipline. We'd just rather you obey and that we can rejoice in our job. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13. Obey them that have rule over you. For they watch out for your soul. Let them do it with joy and not with grief. But we got some that are just determined to cause as much grief as possible. They're living in sin and they're unhappy and they want to make everybody else unhappy as well. And especially those who have to deal with them, And they're outright rebellion. Well, Paul then goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God who has set some in the church, first apostles, we've read this in the beginning, secondarily prophets, Thirdly, teachers, and after that, miracles, then gifts of healing helps governments, diversity of tongues. This is the way the early church was established. Not everything continues on. We call this those gifts that are permanent and those that are temporary. Some of the offices no longer exist. They weren't meant to. They were there to lay the foundation of Christ's church in the new administration. And to them then he gives those who are supposed to go ahead and fulfill their responsibilities, of which are pastors, teachers, elders, governors, and deacons have that responsibility to also participate in the governance of the church in their duties as it's laid out they are still called of God. They still have to have the calling and the gifting. I think we're the only denomination among Presbyterians that require our deacons to actually take a course of study and to pass it before Presbytery. It's not the same as what the governors do, and it's not the same as those who are going to full-time pastor do There are levels or grades of knowledge required. But we want people who know the word of God and have a vision of what Christ's church is supposed to be in light of the office which he has gifted them for. Well, then he goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord. They're over you. It doesn't mean we are without being under authority, not at all. In a Republican form of government, we call it Presbyterianism, we are responsible ministers to the Presbytery that's made up of ministers and elders. And we're responsible to who? The General Assembly is as a Presbytery. There's nobody beyond being accountable. You gotta watch what you do. You get an office, and it's not like you do whatever you wanna do according to your own desires. It's just laid out. These are the things you have to do. You must not violate the Scripture. Secondly, let's explain to you what the Scripture teaches and says how we should practice our faith. We have a confession, we have a larger and shorter catechism, and we designed those systems of worship and practice within the church. Made you, what? For them to what? Be over you. To rule over you. To govern your life. To ensure that you're walking in the faith. As it were, our job. I said this one time and somebody really got mad at me. I think it's funny. It's only an illustration. If you're playing football and you run out of bounds, you got to kick the guy back in bounds if he's going to play. It's just an illustration. Our job is what? When you get out of line, when you get into sin, our job is to bring you back into the church, i.e., in the fellowship, not the building. You're never excommunicated from the building. When excommunication comes, it says, this person isn't living the Christian life, and you need to treat them. Of all things, the worst part, like a tax collector. I don't know anything worse than being called a tax collector. Tax collectors have never been popular in any age. They're aliens. They're not living the faith. Mark them out. We'll see this when we go through it. I didn't say it. It's in the word of God. I'm going to show you that. But who did he give this responsibility to? Those who are over you in the Lord. They've been called and they're working how? According to the Lord's calling. To the word he has given to the church. I never go outside of it. Now, if I do, I expect Presbytery is going to come down on me like a ton of bricks. And that's what I said. I would submit to their authority. We're all accountable. And then what does he say? And admonish you. They admonish you. Their job is to ensure that You are walking in the faith. You say you profess, and it's not just an empty profession of words, no experiential part of your life. It is that your profession matches that experiential aspect of Christianity, the living out of your faith, a living faith, not a dead faith. Somebody's living a life that doesn't have a living faith, and they say, but I have faith. Remember what James said? Well, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you mine with works. That's a pretty hard thing to do. How do you show somebody a faith that you don't have? It's meaningless. First Timothy five seventeen. Let the elders rule well, be counted worthy of Double honor. Yeah, we all wish that could happen. Double pay. The word honor here means pay. Because the elder's duty and responsibility is them to go out and get a job, you make sure you who are having jobs, who are tithing and giving to the church, be sure that those who rule over you get double pay. By the way, this is not a sermon about I want more pay. I'm just telling you, this is what the word of God says. Especially they who labor in the word of doctrine, those who are preaching and teaching the truth to you. I realize not every church can do that. Some can, but by the time they usually get big enough to do that, they're so compromised, there's nothing hardly left of the Christian faith at all. We're told in Hebrews, and I just quoted that earlier, but I'll read it again. 13, verse 7. Remember them which had the rule over you, who have spoken to you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Do you remember what they said would happen if you are not living the faith? that a dead faith will not do much more than put you under condemnation by God and your eternal estate is hell. I'll bet hell's full of people who said, "But I said, I believe. Remember when they came to Jesus and said, hey, have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done this and that? And Jesus said, depart from me. I've never loved you. I don't know you. Now, it's impossible for the second person of the Godhead not to know everybody because that was ordained and decreed from the foundation of the world. It doesn't mean he didn't know that these people would exist. It means he didn't have an intimate relationship with them. They really weren't born anew by the grace of God. Through the power of his spirit They labor for you in word and doctrine. So the faith, follow. Consider it. What they're trying to stop from happening in your life. Going astray. And publicly, in that sense, it's renouncing the faith. I'm not going to live the faith. I'm not going to live like a Christian. I want the fire insurance, but I don't want to have to live like a Christian. You know, if that's the case, you're going to really be out of place in heaven. Because it's going to be a place that what? We're going to live and love the faith. But if you don't like it here, you're not going to like it up there. And therefore, you'll be more satisfied than hell. That's what we're warning you about. The problem is, hell is gone for most of the doctrine today in the churches. Where is the days when the preachers used to hang people over the pits of hell and burn their feet and say, This is what's going to happen if you don't live for Christ. This is what you've been called to do. You better not, because this is going to be the end thereof if you deny it. Then he says in verse 17, Obey. That's that pig Latin word. Obey them that have rule over you. They've been appointed. And submit yourself. You got a command to submit yourself. <coughs> he says, For they watch for your souls. What's our interest? That you end up with the Lord forever. That in the resurrection. You are counted among the body of Christ. That's our goal. We don't walk around and say, Here, drink the Kool Aid. We don't practice Jonestown. We don't walk around saying, Oh, I don't like the way you're dressed. You got to wear suits to come on Sunday to church. You got to do this. You got to do that. You can't have red hair. You got to all have black hair or blonde hair. Or maybe no hair. I think it's a catchy thing now. You see, we're, we're not a cult. Because we don't function outside of what scripture says. I mean, the Old Testament says things about don't make markings on your skin. I don't have any markings. Now, I'm not going to fight over tattoos. But you're not going to find one on me. But we don't even go around and say, look, you got a tattoo. You know, that says you're a slave and it's not to Christ. Because you're tattooing the image of what God has given you and the body prepared for you that didn't come there. In burial, you can't cremate the body as a Christian. It must be buried in the condition it was at death. That's a practice for years in the church. And we'll look at that. But we're not legalistic. We're not. We simply say, listen, you want to listen to music? Take the right kind of music. I'm not telling you what the right kind of music is. But I'm telling you, it's got to be something more than encouraging you to go out and sin, commit adultery, take drugs. If it exhorts sin, then you you shouldn't be listening to it. Watch what you watch on TV. Is it exhorting you to live in sin? Then be careful. I'm not going to tell you what it is. There are some things I might watch that you wouldn't watch, that you would watch, and I wouldn't watch. But you gotta examine it. I mean, there's just some things I have no interest in seeing. I just don't. But someone might be able to watch something, not something that's encouraging and sin, but something that is fantasy and you know. My wife never caught on to space stuff. I always liked Star Trek and everything, but you've got to remember these guys are universalists and they're weird. But I like the fantasy of science. I mean, my best education in science is fiction. Because I think they can do anything that they show you on TV. Dr. DeGray used to me over the head with that all the time. Yeah, Ken, your only science is science fiction. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. I only know science from what I see on TV. I've studied it over a little bit of time. But I don't know enough except to get myself in trouble. I'm not a scientist. But maybe you don't like science fiction. Okay, don't. Sometimes you got to sit down. When we took our children to see some of the Disney movies, we had to sit down and say with them, What's wrong with that movie? Can you tell me what isn't really true that they're doing? Especially the one with the animals talk, and they act like they're human as well, and that just isn't the case. Or they get into universalism, or this, or that. Get into weird things, mysticism, I and mean, you got to explain it all. We got us st- we can't believe this stuff. It's entertaining, but I got a duty to teach them. Read Deuteronomy six: what my responsibility is. When I walk by the way, when I sit down, when I rise up, when they lie down at night, I am constantly teaching the Word of God. They watch for your soul. What? Why? As they must watch, Give an account. I am accountable. The pastors in the church here are accountable. The deacons are accountable for what they do. We're all accountable to God. And because we're a part of a Republican church, we're accountable to each other. And the greater, wider body will judge us if we violate the word of God. They must give an account as to how they handle their duty and responsibility rule over you? Did you really watch for their souls or did you let them go straight into hell? He says that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable to you. If what you're doing gives them grief, it means you're walking in a way that is unprofitable. The end thereof is what you think you think you're going to receive. Well, you know, I haven't renounced the faith, but I don't live like a Christian, but eventually I'll get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. That was the old fundamentalist way of saying it. Well, you'll get in by the skin of your teeth, but you'll have no crowns. I mean, that was the, the worst part of it. I got news for you. You're not going to have any crowns, and you're not going to get in by the skin of your teeth. doesn't work that way. The Bible doesn't say such a thing. Man made doctrine. Verse 24 Salute, which means embrace. Embrace all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints, they of Italy, salute you. The church. is not given the authority to construct its government as it pleases men, to design it according to their whims or their desires, to make it what they think is culturally acceptable, socially good for the practice, will keep people in their church. Keep them coming, keep them tithing. Keep them happy. God forbid you preach against sin and you drive them out. You know what that is? I could go to one of these easy-believe-ism church with 2,000 people and I'll guarantee you in a month we'll have a Scottish revival. Probably 80% will leave. You know why? Probably 80% are those who just give a cent. They want to be religious enough to get fire insurance, but don't make me live like a Christian. Robert Shaw stated this in his commentary, and I'll close with this, on the Westminster Confession. To suppose that the government of the church has no particular form appointed by Christ is to impeach, that is, he means here by impeach, to call into question the love of Christ to his church and his fidelity, that is, his faithfulness, To him who hath appointed him to reign over the house of Jacob. No human society can subsist without government. How absurd then to suppose that the church of Christ, the most perfect of all societies, has been left by her king and savior destitute of what is essential to the very being of its society. To say he got a church... But there's no authority, there's no duty, there's no call to govern and to censure when necessary. How absurd! How dare you impeach the love of Christ for his body? So it is. We'll continue now in the next few weeks, looking. It's the very nature of censorship. And I'll deal with it at every level. I want you to know something. We don't censure because we like walking around and beating you with a big stick. Or I bring a baseball bat with me every week and walk around and pound you in the head. If you're in sin. Those with lumps on their head, those are sinners. They won't do what's right. I've never done that. Now, the old Puritans used to have a rod that had a feather on one end so if a woman fell asleep at church, they'd walk up and tickle her nose till she woke up. On the other end was a brass knob and if you were a man, you'd get that on the back of the head. Wake up! I don't even do that. We're here to love you. But love is not something you say. It is something you do. You don't love your children to say to them, now you shouldn't do this, and then you say it 40 times and they still go out and do it and say, oh, uh, you know, kids will be kids. That's not love. That kid's going to be possibly become a rapist, a murderer, who knows, a thief. Serial killer. Who knows what you're going to get? Why do we train them? Why do we discipline our children? The scripture says because we love them. Sin has consequences. All of life has consequences. Whether it is a sin and if the sin becomes a crime, there are consequences. Both for the sin and the crime. What is our job? To tell you that in Christ. If you will follow. That faith that we are preaching and teaching. If you will let us help you. To work with you. To encourage you to walk in the Christian faith. As laid out in the word of God. That's showing we love you. And by you being willing to work you are submitting to us. And thus we are fulfilling the word of God. Because one day I will give an account. But if you won't do it, my account has to be on the fact that I didn't discipline you. So I don't get an option here. Well, you know, boy, when you discipline somebody, you really become the bad guy. No. I'm fulfilling what God called me to do. And the church has a job to help in that discipline and to honor it because they belong to Christ. And they don't want to live in sin and they don't want to offend Christ. That's not in their nature. So I exhort you, please understand this church, every true church belongs to Christ. And a part of that church is not only the preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, which requires when you're coming to this, that you're living the life of the Christian faith in order to come. That you be not judged by walking underfoot the blood of Christ, but that we exercise church discipline properly and consistently. When we say we love you, we really mean it. Because if we didn't love you, it's saying we could care less. You're going to find out one day. I don't want you to find out. That's the worst thing, to be in sin, the next thing you know, you're standing before God in judgment. Because he's not that forgiving. He's forgiving in Christ. He's not when you trample his son underfoot. Not at all. With ascent comes true living faith that is acted upon, that brings out the fruit of the Spirit in our life and the good works that we've been ordained to walk in. As Paul said, walk in. We were ordained from the foundation of the world to walk in those good works. Unfortunately, my job is not to just preach that to you and exhort you to do it. But when you don't do it, then we have to rule over you. And we have to censure you. We don't get a choice. It'd be nice if you'd say, Well, I'll go to God and I'll say, Please don't do that to the Pastor. He isn't going to, I don't want him to discipline people in our church. You know, God is not going to buy it. I'm sorry. He don't play by our rules. He has his own rules and we are to play by them. And that is, excuse me, an illustration. So don't get too literal with it. It's not a game. But it is our duty. Please take it to heart. Assent is not enough. You must... Be resting, trusting, living out your faith every day of your life. Shall we pray?